King said he informed Ventura Police of Alsip's statement on June 6, 1980. At the time, honoring Michael's request, King did not tell the police the pastor's name. It was learned Wednesday that Michael is receiving police protection for threats on his life. Captain Paul Leidick of the Ventura Police Department testified Wednesday that Michael is being threatened to keep his mouth shut. Who made the threats that made the protection necessary, Leidick didn't say. Hanawalt questioned Leidick at length about the waivers Alsip had signed on March 25th. Hanawalt called Michael's disclosures a total violation of the priest penitent privilege. Two days later, Alsip tried to revoke the waiver. Alsip apparently made the disclosures after he and his wife, Mary, had a counseling session with Michael. Michael, 58, is an associate pastor at the charge, in charge of the family and marriage counseling at the Ventura Missionary Church. The church is located just a little way from the Smith home in East Ventura, like literally down the street, two houses. Alsip is appearing in court attired, Alsip is appearing in court attired in a suit, unusual for a preliminary hearing for a defendant in custody. There was a short delay in the start of the hearing Wednesday while he changed clothes. He had been sent to court by the sheriff in jail garb. Members, it doesn't say garb like that, but I love saying the word garb. Members of Alsip's family and friends occupied seats in the front row of Judge Clark's courtroom. They included his father and mother who have come from New Mexico to attend the trial. Judge Clark mounts the bench on crutches since a skiing accident early this year in which he broke his leg. Hanawalt told the court that Michael, under the guise of a counselor, was a police operative gathering evidence. Leidick testified that Alsip's former attorney, Paul Clinton, advised Alsip three times that he did not have to sign a waiver, that the information had he imparted to Reverend Michael was privileged, and he did not have to have be disclosed. He said Alsip replied that, I don't have any problem signing the waiver. Okay, so now on the 23rd, that was the 22nd, on the 23rd, the headline is Minister Can Tell All in, in the Smith case, the judge says. Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark ruled this morning, so they had the arguments yesterday, which I just read. The Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark ruled this morning that Reverend Donald Michael may testify concerning alleged admissions made to him by Joseph Alsip Jr. Michael, an associate pastor and marriage counselor at the Ventura Missionary Church, reportedly received what had been described as Alsip's confession to the killings of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Defense attorney Richard Hanawalt, representing Alsip, Ventura, uh, Alsip, had sought to block Michael's testimony, claiming it was a violation of the clergyman penitent privilege. I just do wonder at some point if it could be a clergywoman, but you know, I'm a feminist. Michael received the alleged admission from Alsip when the two were alone after a counseling session in church. Hanawalt contends that his client was coerced into signing the waiver, which allowed Michael to tell police what he had heard. Clark, however, said, I am satisfied Mr. Alsip waived his privilege on March 25, 1981, and that he was not coerced. Clark noted, that's the judge, right? The judge noted that Alsip was represented at the time by an attorney, Paul Clinton, and three times Clinton told him he did not have to sign the waiver. Clark also ruled that the fact that Alsip had been hypnotized at one point was not relevant to the question of whether the statement should be admitted. Whoa, so the judge is saying the hypnotized, being hypnotized is not a factor. On Thursday, Prosecutor Rich, Rick, oh my goodness. On Thursday, Prosecutor Pete Casores produced a surprise witness at the hearing. <gasps> we need music. Dun dun dun. The surprise witness was Roosevelt Carlton McCowan, forty, Oxnard, a jailmate, a jail cellmate of Alsip's. 
McCowan testified that Alsip had told him that morning in jail that the only thing he was worried about concerning the hearing was a confession he had made to a minister. He had confessed to the minister, but he didn't think the minister should reveal his confession. The confession was to a killing or killings, McCowan said. It was supposed to have been a business partner of his. They couldn't come to no type of agreement. He did say what kind of a, did he say what kind of a weapon was used, Kasoris asked. It was some type of club, not the police type club, McCowan replied. McCowan said he used his last dime to make a collect call to Detective Jamie Skeeters at the Oxnard. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. My head just heard he used his last dime. Uh, for those of you who are not 800 years old like the rest of us, it used to cost a dime to make a phone call. It may have even been less when before I was around. But I'm laughing because you would literally put a dime in a payphone and then you could make a local call. And that was a big deal. And so your parents would always send you out of the house and make sure you were carrying dimes if you were a girl so you could call, if, get help if you needed it. There you go. How's that for some vintage history for you? Okay. McCowan said he used his last dime to make a collect call to Detective... By the way, a collect call meant that you were reversing the charges. So you had to use the dime to get the dial tone to work. So you could dial. Dial tone is a sound your phone made before you called, which we don't have on cell phones. So you'd get dial tone, and then you would make a collect call saying, I want to... Um, call this person but the person had to accept the charges in my house you were not allowed to make collect calls unless you were on your deathbed because they were very very expensive now now we've got <laughs> I'm like you're welcome to your history lesson all right I'll do this again now without laughing McCowan said he used his last dime to make a collect call to detective Jamie Skeeters at the Oxnard Police Department to give him that information he wasn't trying to get his own sentence reduced, he said, adding he just called Skeeters because I thought he might want to know. It turns out he has Skeeters' extension at police headquarters committed to memory. You gotta love that this guy's name is Skeeters, right? Skeeters called the district attorney's investigator, which resulted in McCowie's speedy production in court. On cross-examination, Hanawalt brought out that both Alsip and McCowan are regulars in a daily jail pinochle game. He also dwelt on McCowan's extensive record in jail and prison. McCowan said Alsip, okay, I'm sorry, I'm just now hearing that I said the word pinochle, and you all might not know what pinochle is either. That's a card game. I've never played it. People play it. I think you gamble during it. I don't know. We're going to need more old people than me to answer that question. Google it is what they say. Google it. Okay. McGowan said Alsip also ex expressed concern about having been hypnotized. Casoras produced the man who did the hypnotizing, District Attorney Investigator Chuck Harbison. The questions he asked concerned not the night of the murder, March 13, 1980, but the night previous, March 12th, when Alsip is alleged to have visited the Smith residence to talk and have a beer. Harbison said Alsip did not go under hypnosis deeply enough to relive the events of that evening, but instead recalled what happened. The date of the hypnosis session was April 24th, 1980, and that was before Alsip was made his alleged missions to the minister. At the time, Harbison testified Alsip was not an active suspect in the crimes. We do not hypnotize suspects, Harbison said. So there you go. That was a lot of uh, vintage in that little blurb there, but very interesting. So the judge said that the hypnosis can stand so far and that the... Um, confession can stand. So here we go. It's April 24th. I think we're going to get down to it because here's the headline. Minister testifies on threats, 
sex at ELSIP hearing. Don't you love, this is why, this by the way, so Michelle, the team, Michelle McNamara's team from Gone in the Dark said that one of the reasons they didn't do anything about the Smith case is they wanted to include all of this. With a headline like, Minister Testifies on Threats, Sex at LSIP Hearing, you've got to figure out that's why people wanted to report on this because, good Lord, what? There's, not only was all my dad's business dealing salacious as hell, but here we go. So I don't remember this article. Let's go find out what's in here. The Reverend Donald Michael testified Friday that Joseph Alsip told him that he and Charlene Smith, one of the two persons Alsip is accused of killing, were lovers. It was her dying screams echoing in his head that caused him to come seeking help, Michael said. Mrs. Smith and her husband Lyman, a prominent Ventura lawyer, were bludgeoned to death in their bed on the night of March 13, 1980, then trussed up after death. Their bodies were found three days later. Michael finally got to tell his story in Ventura County Municipal Court Friday after Judge Bruce Clark cleared away a thicket of legal objections raised by the defense counsel, Richard Hanawalt. Most had to do with the normally confidential relationship between a clergyman and a penitent. Hanawalt has taken the position that the alleged confession was a figment of Michael's, Michael's imagination. On cross-examination, he sought to destroy the pastor's credibility as a witness. The hearing, which will continue next week, is to decide if there is sufficient evidence to hold Alsip for trial. The trial in which Deputy Dep- District Attorney Pete Casoris is expected to seek the death penalty. Michael, an adorn- adorn- ordained, not adorned, ordained minister for 22 years, is associate pastor in charge of family and marriage counseling at the Ventura Missionary Church. By coincidence, the church is but a few doors from the Smith residence on High Point Drive. Michael said he first met Alsip and his wife on March 13, 1980, the day the Smiths were believed murdered. On May 13th, Michael's on May 3rd, okay, this is important because the same day, but it's not. On May 13th, Michael said Alsip and his wife came to him for a counseling session. So he met them for the first time on March 13th, but May 13th is when they came for the counseling session. But the subject of murder, the pastor said, wasn't raised until Alsip came to see him alone on May 21st. He said Alsip had been drinking but wasn't drunk. What did he say? asked Casaurus. He was personally distressed. He wanted relief. Michael said that's when he asked for details and he was told it had to do with the death of the Smiths. I know more about that than I wish to know, he quote, quoted Alsip as saying. He was under a heavy burden and distressed by the details, even if even his wife was bugging him uh, um, and he needed to get away from home. He stated that while it was a very horrible event, what Mr. Smith had done to him by destroying his economy, that Mr. Smith deserved it by destroying his economy. Huh, that's an interesting turn of phrase. Michael Silt Alsup told him he had been a millionaire, but now was worth nothing because Mr. Smith had taken advantage in a real estate deal. From the clergyman's account, it appears Alsip provided few details of the killings, but when he repeatedly used the word we in discussing the crime, apparently indicating some other person or persons were involved. He said Alsip told him the place was turned topsy-turvy or upside down. Michael couldn't be sure which phrase was used, so there would be no follow-up discovery of how the crime was committed. This apparently refers, this is a parenthetical thing here, parentheses. This apparently refers to the tossing about of pillows to give the impression the house had been ransacked, perhaps by the killers whose motive was burglary. 
end parens. As for Mrs. Smith, Michael said, Alsop told him theirs was a very personal relationship. They had made love more than once, and he had thought she cared for him. They had made love some hours before her death, he said. Did he express any fear, Casoris asked? He said that if it he said if this, the interview, became known, his life would probably not be worth very much. The interview, Michael said, lasted 50 minutes, 5-0. Within a few days of the interview, Michael said he had reason to believe his own life was in danger. Michael said he was walking on Victoria Avenue near Buena High School one evening between 8 and 9 p.m. when an older-type car pulled up in front of him with one wheel coming up over the curb. There were three men inside, he said. One got out and warned him to keep his mouth shut about what he knew about the Smith case. He said he'd never seen the individual before. He described him as a Caucasian in his 30s, and he said he didn't get the license number. There were other incidents. Once when he and his wife were walking near the home with the ma- their home with a man with a withering arm came over a stone wall and muttered something unintelligible. Wait, let's just take that in again. Once when he and his wife were walking near their home, a man with a withered arm came over a stone wall. I just trying to picture that, guys, and muttered something unintelligible. Other times, he said he and his wife, out for an evening stroll, crossed the street to avoid suspicious individuals. There were many phone calls, he said, generally to his home between 11 and 1 a.m., an unaccent, so 11 p.m., sorry, and 1 a.m., an unaccented voice he did not recognize warned him repeatedly to keep his silence or suffer dire consequences. Once, the only sound on the line was a gunshot. Michael is chaplain of the Ventura County Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers, a group that meets Thursday mornings. That's really important. At one of these meetings, Michael City had talked to Lieutenant Randy Adams of the Ventura Police Department, presiding of the group, about what had been happening. As a result, an instrument was placed on his phone to trap the re- and record the calls, but apparently it malfunctioned. He also told Adams of the then-confidential admissions he had received from Alsip, but without revealing a name. In March of this year, police captain Paul Leidick showed him a written waiver from Alsip to disclose what he'd been said at the May 21st session. He asked Michael to give a similar waiver. After talking to leaders of his church and obtaining their consent, he did so. In allowing Michael to testify, Judge Clark found both waivers were valid. In cross-examination, Hanawalt asked the pastor, you feel comforted in this presence of the persons in uniform, don't you? Casaurus's objection cut off an answer. Okay, that was really an important question. Hanawalt said, you feel comforted in the presence of persons in uniform, don't you? The prosecution, Picasaurus, objection cut off an answer. Hanawalt told Clark that he is prepared to prove that in other communities in which Michael has lived, he has asked for police protection. In his zeal to impose right over wrong, Don Michael will take small bits of information and blow them up into what he would like it to be, Hanawalt said. Psychologically, he requires symbol of authority to maintain emotional stability, he said. Hannah Walt questioned Michael closely about the alleged threats, both from persons on the street and over the phone. After Hannah Walt told the court, we are talking here about a pathological case of paranoia, the judge called a halt. He took both attorneys and chambers for what proved to be a lengthy conference. When the case resumed in open court, the judge announced he had directed Hanawalt to submit legal points and authorities in writing to show that the lines of questioning he had pursued are both admissible and relevant. He is to present them before the hearing resumes at 9.30 a.m. on Monday. Okay, so um, 
let's let's fast forward to Monday because that's where we go next. I'm pretty sure this is Monday. I could go check on a calendar, but this is Greg Zaroya again, LSIP Lawyer Attacks Minister's Credibility. So I think this is where we dive into what the heck's been going, what, what these credibility questions are about and what we really have here. This should be interesting. The defense attorney for murder suspect Joseph Alsip Jr. contended in a court document filed today that the prosecution's key witness, a Ventura minister, suffers from a mental disorder and cannot be believed. The testimony of the Reverend Don Michael, an associate pastor at Ventura Missionary Church, is considered crucial to the prosecution's case against Alsip, who accused who is accused of killing Lyman and Charlene. Michael has testified about an alleged admission to the crime made to him by Alsip months after the March 1980 slayings. Defense attorney Richard Hanawalt hoped to question Michael today about the minister's past involvement with the police, the manner in which his involvement plays into Michael's alleged desire for bolstering his ego, and how, ultimately, it warps or alters Michael's memory. Hanawalt submitted legal arguments supporting his demand to question Michael about these allegations, and Deputy District Attorney Pete Casores filed arguments opposing the move. You know, by the way, it's just got to suck when you're a prosecutor and suddenly it turns out that your key witness might be bonkers. All right. Uh, this morning, Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark, who is presiding over Alsip's preliminary hearing, now in its fourth day, discussed the matter with attorneys in his chambers for more than an hour. Clark has not made public his ruling by late this morning when cross-examination of the minister resumed. So that's interesting. He didn't rule, but he allowed cross-examination to continue. So, huh. Okay, I'm sure they discussed it in chambers. Hannah Walt, however, said in chambers, Clark indicated he would refuse to allow questioning of some, if not all, of these allegations from Michael's past. Okay, so in chambers, Clark did say he was going to not allow some of these, some of the questioning. So... Here we go. This is interesting because it sounds like Hannibal's talking to the reporter because he's going to make sure he gets his side out there because that's what good defense attorneys do. Let's get back to the article. Hannibal said he might still be able to touch on the material by calling a psychiatrist, Dr. Oh, good God. Look at this name. Okay. You cannot make this up, guys. This is the name, Dr. T, initial T, initial E, initial A. Yes, that spells T, but there's a period after each of those letters. And then get the last name, Von Dedenroth. Von Dedenroth. It needs music, guys. This is like a character from Gotham. Dr. T-E-A Von Dedenroth to testify about his diagnosis of Michael. Okay, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, but if you're a medical doctor and you have to have all your letters that spell the word T in your name and then your Von Dedenroth as your last name, well, you should be writing books is all I'm going to say. Von Dedenroth has examined police and investigative reports concerning Michael and observed Michael testify last week. In his professional opinion, he has concluded that the witness suffers from a mental condition or defect, Hanawalt's documents say. Okay, so this is interesting. It's not coming up in court. This is from what Hanawalt filed. So yes, the reporters can get their hands on it, but it doesn't mean, well, the judge has heard it. I mean, the judge is the one making a decision to see if there's enough to hold him over. So this is really messy and sensational and interesting. Here we go. Specifically, Michael has a tendency to place fault or blame upon the activities of other persons or groups and rationalize things that don't make sense, the document said. I'm sorry. I'm 
most of us, that's what we use rationalization for. I think that's a very different definition of rationalizing. It's when you're trying to justify stuff that just doesn't make sense. How many times has somebody said, you're just rationalizing? It's like, yep, yeah, I'm working hard here, trying to stay afloat, just treading water. That's, that's me rationalizing. Okay, sorry. I, I'm sorry that that tickled me. Let me go back to this. Let me read the paragraph again because I really did end up laughing. Specifically, Michael has, this is this some more of the diagnosis, mind you. Specifically, Michael has a tendency to place fault or blame upon the activities of other persons or groups and rationalize things that don't make sense, the documents state. It is apparent that the ability of Donald Michael to separate reality from whimsy, illusion from fantasy, is now and was during the year 1980 seriously in doubt, Hanawalt contends. Oh, he might be a better writer if he didn't do so much uh, crazy, crazy comma splicing. The Smiths were bludgeoned to death in their bed on the night of March 13th, and their bodies were found three days later. Alsop was arrested some 20 months after the killings. Michael is in charge of family and marriage counseling at the Ventura Missionary Church. I love how they throw that in there right now when you're like, oh, he's nutty as a nuthouse, but okay, he's over there managing the family and marriage counseling. <sighs> Sorry, I get so distracted because this is just, I, you guys, I was 22. This is, I mean, 20 years old. This is like crazy town. Last week, he testified about it. Okay, this is Michael. They're, when they say he, it's Michael. Last week, he testified about a meeting he had with the defendant months after the murder, during which Alsip allegedly admitted he was at the scene of the crime. In recounting the alleged admission by Alsip, Michael also said that the defendant and Charlene had been lovers and that Alsip was angry about losing a vast amount of money in a business arrangement with Smith. According to the documents submitted this morning by Hanawalt, the defense intends to prove that this crucial meeting between Alsip and Michael never took place. Hanawalt also intends to show that Michael has a history of involvement with law enforcement agencies. It is, said Hanawalt, an uncontrolled desire on Michael's part to find a, a place in the sun. Because of Mr. Michael's need to maintain a favorable ego, his defense mechanisms apparently fail to provide a degree of stabilization, and the evidence would tend to indicate that he resolves his inner conflicts with an apparent regression to fantasizing on a grandiose level, the documents say. Now, I got to tell you, that is some pretty damn deep analysis from just reading stuff and watching a guy in court. Can you imagine being having this diagnosis pronounced for everyone to hear? This is this is in the paper. It's in the paper. It's not in the court record other than in as um as a response to the motion, but oh my god, this is like his his whole parish or whatever you call a yeah, is it a parish? His whole congregation, that's the right word. His whole congregation is reading this in the paper. Can you imagine? Okay, we're not quite done yet, though. Wait, there's more. And it's going to be interesting, I'm sure. Hanawalt wants to show that Alsip's alleged admission is a figment of the pastor's imagination. Michael has been an adorned, uh, I can't read that word. Why not? Has been an ordained minister for 22 years, and Hanawalt wanted to question him about his cooperation with law enforcement dating back to 1950. Guys, that's 30 years of being involved with law enforcement. That's a lot of time. At that time, according to documents, Michael cooperated in a Lakewood, Indiana police drug investigation where he loaned officers his car. He loaned officers his car. First of all, I watch a lot of police dramas. Rarely do you loan someone your car. Typically, the police say, give me your car. 
then they take it if they have to. And I'm sure they don't like to do that because I got to think that that just blows the budget of the department like you can't believe. But in this case, he loaned officers his car. But wait, there's more. After this incident, Michael was the subject of numerous threats, the court documents state. According to Hanawalt, Michael recounted one of these in a close call in which he avoided several gunmen who approached his car by revving the engine of his car and escaping. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't do found effects. I'm not a boy. Some of the information contained in the court documents describes Michael's alleged history of receiving threats and escaping kidnapping and assault attempts being persecuted by Mormon church officials for converting a Mormon bishop. Would he convert a Mormon bishop to what? And being the subject of police and FBI protection. Okay, guys, do you get that? Look, listen to this, this guy. He has an alleged history of receiving threats, escaping kidnapping, escaping assault, being persecuted by a Mormon church for converting a bishop, and being subject of police and FBI protection. One example from the document states that in 1968 in Denaire, California, Don Michael related that he had been kidnapped by some Mormons. I so want to just riff right now because I can't think of any. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do it. I can't stop laughing about it's a it's a Mormon gang. You know, they're driving like what a, a nice, beautiful a Buick. They're probably driving a Buick, and. They're out to kidnap because that's what Mormon gangs do. They go out and they kidnap people. Okay, if that really happens, I don't know about it. So just forgive me at this moment if that's actually a thing. But it sounds hilarious to me because I just can't imagine. But here's what happened. Okay, he had, okay, Don Michael related that he had been kidnapped. He's actually saying he had been taken. He had been kidnapped by some Mormons. Then, at a stoplight, he escaped and fled on foot. He told one person, I was a goner if they caught me. While in Denaire, California, Don Michael again tells parishioners that his church is being checked by the FBI each Sunday for bombs. Okay. Okay. There you go. So, you be 22 years old and read this stuff or 20 years old, actually, and read this stuff and not go, oh my God, what is actually happening in this case? This is starting to get loopy, loopy, loopy. But let's go on to the next day, April 27th, 1982. Minister at ALSIP trial gives in to ultimatum. A venture minister testifying in the murder trial of Joseph ALSIP today revealed information sought by the defense rather than face a contempt of court citation. The Reverend Donald Michael is a key prosecution witness witness in the case against Alsip. The information Michael withheld for a short time Monday was not particularly dramatic. It dealt with the location of a safe where he kept important notes. Monday, Michael said he did not want to reveal the safe's location for security reasons. But on the stand this morning, Michael testified that the safe is located at the Ventura Missionary Church, where he serves as an associate pastor. Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark had warned the minister Monday that failure to disclose the information could result in Michael being jailed for contempt of court. It could also have resulted in Michael's testimony being thrown out. Michael's testimony came on the fifth day of ALSIP's preliminary hearing, during which Clark must decide whether there is enough evidence to warrant a trial. Learning the location of the safe, where Michael said he kept for a time, copies of rewritten notes describing a crucial meeting he had with Alsip could be important to the defense in its efforts to discredit the minister's recounting of events. 
Defense attorney Richard Hanawalt has tried extensively to probe Michael's memory about a variety of details with the hope of showing discrepancies in Michael's testimony. Hanawalt contends that a meeting between Michael and Alsip, which, is reportedly, which reportedly took place on May 21st, never happened. To support this contention, Hanawalt must trace exactly what Michael did with the notes he made of the meeting. Today, Hanawalt grilled Michael about what he did with the notes and a tape recording after they were prepared. He said the minister, he asked the minister to draw diagrams of his office, the church, and the area where the safe was located. Michael testified that he placed his permanent notes and the tape recording in an envelope and turned them over to the then head of the Ventura Missionary Church, the Reverend Leonard DeWitt. He assumed DeWitt then placed them in the safe. Michael turned the notes over to police in March of 1981. He t that's like a year later. He testified Monday that he originally drew up notes immediately after the meeting with Alsip on the morning of May 21st. That's in 1980. Michael, 58, an ordained minister for 22 years, is in charge of family and marriage. I love this part. It just always gets repeated because you're like, by the way, this guy, he's in charge of uh, marriage and family counseling over at the church. It was during a counseling session that Alsip reportedly distraught over the memory of Mrs. Smith's dying screams, allegedly admitted to be the slay to being at the slaying scene that night at the Smiths, the, the night the Smiths were beaten to death. Smith and his wife were bludgeoned to death on March 13th. Uh, okay, we know all this. According to Michael's version of the May 21st meeting with Alsip, the defendant also talked about his romantic involvement with Charlene and his hatred for Smith that stemmed from real estate business deals between the two men in which Alsip reportedly lost large sums of money. Michael said that within a week or so after the meeting with Alsip, he rewrote some preliminary notes into a more permanent form, destroyed the original notes, and placed the permanent copies in a safe. By the way, y'all, if you ever have evidence, don't be destroying it. That's just not good. I don't care if you rewrite them. Always keep the old notes. These are things we learn. Don't destroy any primary sources of information. All right. Hanawalt has taken pains to undermine Michael's credibility as a witness, alleging that the minister is paranoid and has been involved or has claimed to have been involved with law enforcement in the past. Hanawalt has gone so far as to claim that Michael was, has a mental disorder that warps his sense of reality and is triggered by an alleged desire to bolster his ego. Clark has refused, to judge Clark, has refused to allow Hanawalt to question Michael about any of these alleged problems or background, although the defense attorney said he might still be able to touch on the material by calling a psychiatrist. Meanwhile, a second prosecution man, a second prosecution witness, a man who has been Alsip's jail cellmate was ordered to stand trial Monday on five counts of theft in cases entirely unrelated to the Alsip case. Carlton McCowan, 40, Oxnard, testified last week during the Alsip hearing that Alsip told him he was worried about the, a minister's testimony. He had confessed to the minister, but he didn't think the minister should reveal his confession, McCowan testified. Monday, McCowan's defense attorney requested the bail be reduced from 5000 to 1000 because of the possibility McCowan might be in danger in jail because of his testimony, but presiding municipal court judge John Hunter refused to reduce bail. McCowan faces arraignment in Superior Court on May 10th. Before the ALSIP hearing resumed this morning, Judge Clark met with his attorneys in his chambers to discuss whether all the evidence submitted during the hearing including transcripts of police interviews with Alsip and Michael and Michael's notes with his, of his meetings with Alsip should be made public. 
According to one source, Hanawalt apparently objected to any gruesome photographs of the crime scene being mailed available or any documents pertaining to statements or alleged statements by his client. Clark has ordered that all the transcripts, notes, and sensitive photographs be sealed. Now, that was April 27th, but we go on because now there's another article from the... Um, Wait a minute, hang on. Oh yeah, this is the, okay, this is the last one we're gonna do for this. But this is April uh, 27th, is what I have here, although it's kind of jammed up, but let's keep going. Maybe this is actually the um, more coverage of the actual trial, the actual hearing. So this is still Greg Zoroya again, Alsip's fingerprints in Smith home. Murder defendant Joseph Alsip's Jr.'s fingerprints were found in the home of Ventura attorney Lyman Smith. The seven prints from the middle and index finger of Alsip's left hand and both his thumbs were found on a goblet in the couple's home, Ventura police investigator Harry Scott said. The fingerprint testimony was the last of the prosecution's evidence presented at Alsip's preliminary hearing, now in its seventh day in Ventura County Municipal Court. The 34-year-old defendant, a former business partner of Smith, is charged with murdering the well-known attorney and his wife. After hearing Scott's testimony about the fingerprint, de defense attorney Richard Hanawalt conceded it may be, an may be enough to have his client held over to answer at trial. I've got to admit, technically right now, a judge could easily say there is a strong suspicion his client committed the killing, said Hanawalt. But there are flaws in the fingerprint evidence, including Alsip says that he visited the Smith residence that night before the slayings and could easily have left his fingerprints on the goblet at that time. The standard of proof at a preliminary hearing, unlike the more demanding beyond a reasonable doubt standard necessary to prove guilt in a trial, requires only that a judge have a strong suspicion a crime has been committed and that the defendant is responsible. I'm not conceding anything, Hanawalt added, saying he still intends to try to convince Judge Bruce Clark not to hold Alsip to answer for the crimes. In addition to that task, Hanawalt will also try to persuade prosecutors that their case would not hold up in a jury trial. Nobody in his right mind is going to commit another fourth of a year in another fourth of a year in prosecution to that which cannot even convince the observers in the courtroom," said Hanawalt. To bat his point is nobody in his right mind is going to commit another fourth of a year in prosecution. God, why do these people speak so complicated? So basically saying it's going to be a waste of time. To back up his efforts, Hanawalt says he plans to call a minimum of twenty-five witnesses when his turn for a defense begins today. He told Clark, just like 25 witnesses, he told Clark Wednesday that he thought the hearings would probably extend through Monday. Just before Scott testified, Deputy District Attorney Pete Casores called Charles Gilliard, a general contractor in Ventura, to testify Wednesday about a business split that developed between Alsip and Smith a few months before the slayings. Gilliard, a former business associate of both men who sided with Alsip when company interests shared by the partners were divided in December 1979, said that Smith and associate Bob Placencia wound up with what it proved to be the more lucrative end of the business. The breakup was largely orchestrated by Smith. Interest assumed by Gilliard, Alsip, and a fifth partner, Ed Skiffstrom, eventually lost money. The evidence was designed to support Consorus's contention that one motive for the slaying was Alsip's alleged anger over losing money and a suspicion that Ch Smith cheated him. Gilliard, clearly a hostile prosecution witness, also said that the breakup among the five of original partners was harmonious and not the bitter dissolution the prosecution claims. His testimony followed the most controversial and crucial witness for the prosecution, a Ventura minister who said that Alsip allegedly made damning admissions about the slayings in a counseling session months after the killings. 
The police investigation spanned 20 months. Um, we know all this, this, we already heard this. Uh, the Reverend Don Michael, an associate pastor, uh, counseled Alsip and his wife. Alsip allegedly confided that he had been Mrs. Smith's lover and her dying screams had forced him to seek absolution from sin. Although no details of the slayings were provided, the minister said it was clear Alsip was present when the Smiths were, clear, were killed. He said Alsip repeatedly used the word we in describing the crime. Hanawalt says the meeting between Michael and Alsip and the alleged admissions by his clients never took place, and he plans to prove it when presenting this case. In an effort to undermine the 58-year-old minister's credibility, Hanawalt said he has gathered evidence that shows Michael has an extensive history of involvement with law enforcement, a capacity for paranoia, and a tendency to embellish facts. Hanawalt also counted among his victories during cross-examination of a minister that having forced him to admit that he lied to the police and the investigator about where he kept the notes of the meeting with Alsip. Alsip's preliminary hearing, normally a routine affair in most criminal cases that lasts a few hours at most, has drawn large crowds. The courtroom has been frequently filled to capacity with interested viewers. Hanawalt said he is not ruling out the possibility of calling Alsip to the stand. Alsip's wife may also be called. Although present at previous court hearings, Ms. Alsip has not attended the preliminary hearing. Family members say she is at home tending to a child with the mumps. Hanawalt said that among the witnesses he plans to call are people who will account for Alsip's whereabouts at the time of the slayings and the time he allegedly met with Michael. Among those people will be Gilliard, Hanawalt said. He also intends to call District Attorney Investigator Dick Haas, to whom Michael lied about the location of the notes, and Ventura Police Detective Dave Stone. County jail inmates will be called to counter the testament of the testimony of Roosevelt Carlton McCowan, a former jail celly of Alsip, who appeared at the he did not write celly. I just said that a former jail cellmate of Alsip, who appeared at the hearing last week, to testify that Alsip admitted making a confession to the minister. Hannah Walt, whose flamboyant manner of dramatic pauses and rhetorical exclamations in the midst of cross examinations, have marked his courtroom demeanor revealed Wednesday that he has yet to have been paid anything by Alsip or his family. Since much of Alsip's investments are tied up in civil litigation, no money has been available, although Hanawalt has said he has been told some payment is forthcoming. I'm not distressed, the attorney said, because I'm a gambler. I've gambled before and I'll gamble again. Not only that, but this is a good fight. State monies have been sought to pay for the various defense requirements, such as investigators. Okay, I'm going to leave you with that because bleh, what a crazy, crazy, crazy case. And yes, I it's unfortunate we don't have video of Dick Hanawalt because I know I did testify and maybe he's going to call me up for washing the dishes, which is interesting. I don't remember. Um, but he was flamboyant and he did like to use rhetoric and he did believe in drama. And if you could see him, he was not an attractive man. I mean... Like, he would have been one of those great character actors that they pick out for uh, Criminal Minds or one of those kind of shows where the guy's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, that's Dick Hannibalt. Oh, my God. I hope he's passed because I don't want to hear him, hear him, have him hear me disparaging him. But, oh, my God. Anyway, there you have it. Now we're still, we're, the prosecution rests in the um, prelim. And when we come back, we'll come back to theater. We'll come back to Dick Hanawalt raising holy hell. <sighs> wow. What a story. What a crazy, crazy story. Okay. Thanks, you guys. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time. It's blowing through your hair.
surround.